We are in Joshua 17. We're gonna pick up right where we left off last, well, I guess it was on Sunday. We didn't finish the chapter. We got through a couple of them. Joshua 17, verse 12. Ready? Good. But the sons of Manasseh, let me just remind you last week we looked at, or Sunday we looked at Ephraim and Manasseh. Right, Ephraim, who was the second born, but was moved into firstborn status by old, not by old Jacob, by old Israel, as he crossed his hands and blessed Ephraim. And so the tribe of Ephraim comes into that place of firstborn status, even over the tribe of Manasseh. But both have gotten their allotments of land. In chapter 16, we saw Ephraim. In chapter 17, Manasseh. And if we pick up in verse 12, the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. Those pesky Canaanites. It came about when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Let me ask you a question. Was forced labor an option? It seems like reading through Torah that God was pretty clear. Drive them out not put them into forced labor. It almost sounds Egyptian. I mean, how long have they been out of Egypt that already they're doing the same type of thing? And you might say, well, at least they didn't wipe them out, but, but the Lord said to wipe them out. The Lord said, drive them out. And so here we see them putting Canaanites to forced labor. By the way, the, the term forced labor, it can be variously translated. It could be tribute. So they forced them to pay tribute. It could be a taxation and or it could also include servitude. But God's command regarding the Canaanites was, again, drive them out. In fact, more specifically, God said, I will drive them out before you. More than once, multiple times, the Lord says, I will drive them out. I will drive them out. And all he's asking the children of Israel to do is believe him for it. Which means take up arms, go to fight, and trust me, I got this. I will drive them out before you. And yet, with each inheritance that we have seen so far in Joshua, if you go back just a couple of chapters, you note that for Judah, it's the fortified Jebusites. They, they don't drive them out. They let them remain because they can't. Jerusalem was a hard city to take, and we'll see that in a, perhaps in a later study, oh, long about 2047, uh, when we get to 1 Samuel, but, but that, or 2 Samuel. But that's, that's a tough, tough city to take just because of the way it's located in the hills of Israel, but the Jebusites, they were there, so Judah didn't take them out. For Ephraim and Manasseh, both, it's those pesky Canaanites. And you can look back and see the same thing, verse 10 of chapter 16, speaking of Ephraim, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. They couldn't even drive out an old Gezer. So they come to Joseph now, or, or to, to Joshua, the sons of Joseph come to Joshua, Ephraim and Manasseh, the, the two tribes, their leaders, and they want to float a different complaint. Watch this. I think it's an excuse. I'll prove it to you. Verse 14, then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed? Well, first of all, if you look at a map, and, and Corey, go ahead and put the map up again just for a second here. Take a look, and if you can see above Judah in the yellow, you see Ephraim in the green and Manasseh in the red. 
and then Manasseh further up on the other side of the Jordan in the red as well, or the pink, it looks like they got more than one parcel of land. In fact, if you add that together, just Ephraim and Manasseh on the western side, that's a lot of territory there. Was there an unfair allocation of land is the question. And keeping that slide up just a bit longer, Corey, understand this, Judah, which you can see by the map, Judah has the largest parcel. But Judah was the largest tribe. According to the census, the last census taken in Numbers 26, Judah was the largest tribe by far. They had more people in Judah than in both Ephraim and Manasseh combined. So of course Judah would need more land, would be given more land. But add to that, and this is what's really interesting to me, Dan, Issachar, and Zebulun, which I don't even know if you can see them from that far away. Dan is on the left side where you see Joppa on the Mediterranean coast. About halfway up is tiny little Dan stuck in there. Dan, if you go straight up from Dan, cross Manasseh, you see Zebulun in the green up toward the top. So Dan, Zebulun, and Issachar, which is down right beside, just below Zebulun. So you see those three plots of land, not very big. Dan, Issachar, and Zebulun all had more people than Ephraim and half of Manasseh combined. So they didn't get much land at all, but they didn't complain. Well, Dan would, but that's a totally different story. The other two, they didn't complain. They, they took their land. Well, Ephraim and Manasseh, now they come and say, look, we're, we're important. We got lots of people. We got big numbers. We've made our way. We're a mega church. We need to be seen as such. We need to be known as such. You know what? Truth is, the issue isn't inheritance. It's inhabitance. Look at verse 15. Joshua said to them, if you're a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Now, there's, there, I, I can't help but feel like there's a little bit of snark in what Joshua was saying. Oh, you need more land? Well, just go to giant country. You know, you need more land? Just go up and clear it. You got, and, and, and he's right. There was plenty of land. Much of it in the higher elevations was forested. And there were still the Perizzites or I like to call them the parasites, either way works. And they were there. And then the sons of Joseph said, verse 16, the hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the valley, in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Bethshan and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Oh, now the story's changing. It's not we don't have enough land because we're too big. It's they have iron chariots. And the fear factor is back. I love Joshua, his response. He would, he'd be a great dad because he says to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh saying, you are a numerous people and have great power. Only you shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and its farthest borders shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So he just calls them on their bluff. Well, we don't have enough land. Sure, you have plenty of land. Well, there are chariots there. That's okay, you have plenty of land. Clear them out. Clear them out. Go get it. All right, Corey, you can probably go back. Oh, he already did. Good job. Again, it's not inheritance. It's inhabitants. It's not that they don't have enough. It's that what they have has to be fought for land. It has to be fought for. What's funny to me about this scenario is they had already forgotten, apparently, 
What we just read a few chapters back in chapter 11, the Israelite victory up at the waters of Merom, north of the Galilee, when there was a mass gathering of several nations and chariots and cavalry, and Israel went into that battle on foot and decimated them, and they burned the chariots and hamstrung the horses. And now you're afraid of chariots? Boy, it makes you wonder, do prior victories not teach us anything? You know, as followers of Jesus, those prior victories are important in your faith walk. It is important to look back and remember the times that God conquered on your behalf. You might say, well, it's been 20 years. Hey, but it happened. Be thankful that he was faithful and showed you his promise and conquered for you. Recognize the things that he's done. One of the best Psalms for this, I won't go into it tonight, but Psalm 77 is fantastic because the whole thing is about a man who's sinking deep into depression, can't get any resolution to the sorrow in his heart until the end of the Psalm when he says, but I will remember the ways of the Lord. Yes, I will remember his mighty deeds and his mighty ways. And he starts to recount the crossing of the Red Sea, which the psalmist at that point hadn't even experienced but remembering what God has done, remembering those victories, look back to the burning chariots, remember that, praise the Lord, and take on the chariots that are in front of you. I love Joshua's attitude. When, when self-doubt rises up, see, that's the thing. Their claim about being too numerous was a smokescreen for their self-doubt. And that's often the case. But I love Joshua's response, you have the land. Go get it. You have the land. Go get it. It's the recurring theme of the victorious Christian life. You have the land. Go get it. The land is yours. Go get it. The promise is yours. Go get it. God has given his promise to you and to me. We have it. Now we get to go after it. It might seem curious to say it that way, but what God is saying is, look, you have your salvation. And I am gonna see you all the way through to your salvation, but I'd really like you to come and get it, to walk by my will, to walk by faith. So your salvation is secure, it's out ahead. Start walking, start fighting. Take hold of what I have already promised you and already provided for you. And you know, in the battle, he even goes further than that. He provides what we need. He doesn't just say, go get it and good luck. You know, I think about, what was it, comedian Ron White in the, in the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, you know, talking about dropping his daughter off and saying, you know, I'm just gonna pin a $20 bill to her collar and say, we wish her the best of luck, <laughs> you know. Just go and let me know how you do. That's not the Lord. The Lord says, no, no, I'm gonna drive them out before you. So we step forward in faith to fight the enemy in this world by faith, and the Lord's already out ahead of us, and he's already fighting these battles. But as we go, there's something he knows we need, and he gives it to us in spades, and it is the word Jake mentioned, endurance. Endurance, point number one tonight. God gives us endurance to receive. Endurance to receive. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, don't misunderstand that. Jesus isn't saying, you gotta get to the end to win your salvation. No, no, your salvation's already won. Just endure. 
Just see it through. This word is becoming so significant to me in our culture and in our very dark and depraved world. I came into staff meeting this morning, and, and, and I know I talk about staff meeting every Wednesday night. You know why? Because it's Wednesday morning. So I came in this morning and just having read the news and looking at more things, and, and I came in and said, I am just so disgusted. I'll, I'll tell you what I was really disgusted about. It was a side note, and this, this doesn't count for the time for, night, for tonight in the teaching. A little side story. We on Saturday, was it, Cheryl? I think Saturday when we got the new Jackbox game pack, right? Okay, you knew I was gonna mention this, right? So if you've ever played Jackbox, it's actually a lot of fun. There are several game packs and you can purchase them through your Fire Stick or you can get them on a PlayStation or whatever. And then you sit around and as a family, the game is on the TV, but everybody has their, their phone or their, or their pad and, and you, you play these trivia games together and, and it's, it's a lot of fun. It's just kind of interactive games that you can play. And so we got the new party pack on Saturday. It was Cheryl's birthday. Happy birthday, sweetheart. And um, we started to play. Had a good time. Played a game. Oh, that was a lot of fun. Let's try the next one on the list, you know. And we're going down the list. We come to, I think, what was the third one. I forget what it's even called. Doesn't matter. I'll never play it again. The game itself was fine. It was just a game. It was a fun game, actually. But the host on the TV screen was a cartoon transsexual. Yeah, it was a, a, obviously a man, obviously a man, but with, you know, shoulder pads and high heels, and, and the voice was a male voice, and makeup on the face. And that was the host of this particular game. And I was like, no way, come on, are you kidding me? And I'll tell you, my, one of my pet peeves, one of Rick's pet peeves, is when that stuff comes into my living room. And I didn't ask for that. And I don't want that. And that's not okay. And if that sounds, you know, harsh and judgmental or, or phobic, oh, Rick's transphobic. I'm not transphobic. I see that stuff and it breaks my heart because it is so confused. So anyway, that's on my mind. I come into staff meeting and I was a little grumpy. I don't know if you noticed. A little grumpy about this world, about what's going on. And the, the word that just came to us over and over and over as we prayed and talked through some other stuff going on, we just, it was endurance. When the Bible says, Hebrews 10, 36, you have need of endurance, I have never understood that better than I do today. You have need of endurance. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. I've already promised it to you. I've already won it. I've already given it to you. Now endure. You have need of endurance, all of you. I'm coming. It's gonna happen. You'll be there. So endurance to receive, God provides that. But, but where, where do we go to get such endurance. I know, I know to the Lord, that's the obvious answer, but how do we drive out pride and persistent sin completely? You know, how, how, how could we be Judah driving out the Jebusites or, or, or Ephraim and Manasseh driving out the Canaanites rather than allowing them to exist, the sin in our lives? How can we just drive it out completely and not give it space to live within us? Joshua gives what I think is a great way of thinking. He tells the, the Ephraimites and the Manassehites, he says, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites. 
He says in verse 18, the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. He says, go to the hill country, go up to the forest. How do I clear out sin in my life? Go to the hill country. Go to the forest. What are you talking about, Rick? If we draw back just a little bit and look at the Hebrew, hill country, hill country is literally in the singular, it's the word har. Like Har-Megiddo. Har-Megiddo is Mount Megiddo. What's translated here as hill country is Mount. Joshua says, go to the Mount. And the word forest is Ya'ar in Hebrew, and it translates wood. And to me, that's, uh, that's the answer. Go up to the Mount of the Wood, where the battle has already been won. Go to Mount Calvary and to the cross where the battle has already been won. Now listen to me on this because this is just not, sometimes we can assume that the cross, the cross is for the non-believer. And once I've accepted Jesus and he died for me on the cross, yes, he did, and praise the Lord for that. But, but then I go on, you know, toward resurrection. Well, if that's the case, then why do we take communion every time we gather? Why did Paul say you ought to do that? Why did Jesus say as, many, as often as you do so, do it in remembrance of me? Because the cross of Jesus our Lord is not only for salvation, it is the key to sanctification and endurance. Look to the mount of the wood and it will drive out your foolish pride. It will drive out the sense of, hey, we got big numbers, we need more space. It will also drive out the fear of the chariots and persistent sin that you can't get rid of. Listen to Paul describe this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And often it is. People hear about that and it just doesn't make sense. Well, I don't... I don't know about that Jesus stuff and the cross stuff and all, you know, the passion, saw that movie, it was kind of, ooh. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Paul says, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And, and never in my life has that verse also made more sense than it does right now. How foolish is the wisdom so-called of the world? Illogical, unreasonable, ridiculous. People buying into stuff all over the place and it's utter nonsense. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then down in chapter two, verse two, Paul says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now listen, when he went down to Corinth, determined to only preach Christ, it didn't take long before a church was established. And now he's writing them again and he's reminding them about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen, we preach. We preach the cross to believers because it is the wisdom and the power of God. 
We need to be taken back to the mount of the wood to drive out sin and to transform within. So we need endurance, endurance to receive the promise. Well, the cross gives us that endurance, continues to bring us back to the place of endurance. In fact, if you want to note this secondly, we need a Eucharist to remember. A Eucharist to remember. Endurance to receive and a Eucharist to remember. I love the word Eucharist. We don't use it much outside the Catholic Church. That's a very Catholic term, but it doesn't need to be. It's just eucharisteo, which in the Greek means thanksgiving. And that's what communion is. When we gather at the tables, it is in thanksgiving for what Jesus did at the cross. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes which is that beautiful dichotomy. We proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim what seemed to be a loss, but is actually a victory. And we go back to the cross, go up to the mount where the wood is. And we worship Jesus and we recognize he did everything to win the battle. The battle really is already won. But like Israel, we often have reception issues. Chapter 18, verse one. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh, and they set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. There remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? The gift is given. When are you going to open it? You know, that my kids, on, on Christmas morning, it's always a thing, you know? They, they want to make it last as long as possible. And we'll be sitting there, and I'll finally say, all right, who's next? Let's get this show on the road. Open the gifts. You know, I, I, I dare any family to get to the end of Christmas Day and have one gift under the tree and have the kids go, ah, maybe tomorrow we'll get to that one. How long are you going to put it off? Open the gift. Take possession. Apparently, by the way, Joshua here is looking for a little initiative. There are still seven tribes who have not taken possession of the land. Judah has. At least Judah's off taking possession of it. We know Caleb is out in the hills of Hebron fighting giants. You know, Ephraim and Manasseh, they, they've come, they'd argued a little bit, but Joshua sent them away back to their, their places. So they have their allotments of land but there are still seven tribes standing around, hands in their pockets, you know, shuffling their sandals. Well, what do we do now? Take possession of the land. Joshua says to them, how long will you put off entering to take possession? Let me ask you, how would you answer that? And has the Lord said that to you anytime recently, maybe even tonight? How long are you gonna put this off? before you're willing to step forward and take hold of the promise. The word put off in Hebrew, when Joshua says, how long will you put it off? It's mitrapim, and it's literally neglect by dejection. I love Hebrew because, I mean, full, the words are so full of meaning. Neglect by, by dejection. These seven tribes are in a, in a position of neglect because they're dejected. 
They've already won great wars. In fact, remember, by this point, all of the major nations have been put down. Now it's just about moving into the land and, and, and clearing out the remnants and, and, and those who are, who are hiding out to cause you trouble. So they've already had great victory, but it's neglect by dejection. By the way, that same word also means to be idle, feeble, or frail. And that's, that's what neglect by dejection does to us. When we neglect the promises of God because we feel all bummed out and dejected, we become feeble in our faith. We become frail. It gets much more difficult to run with endurance. You want a prescription for a feeble Christian walk? I can give you one that's very easy. Just neglect the promises of God. And you will become weak in the knees and you will remain in idol. And you know what people who remain in idol are? They're like a car at a stoplight. You're in idol. All you're doing is sitting there expelling methane. Anyway, go to Hebrews chapter two in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter two, all the way back to the far side, the end of the New Testament there. Hebrews two and listen to what the Hebrew pastor has to tell us about this, this same mentality, which now he's challenging Christians, probably Jewish Christians, or at least he's coming at it from a very Jewish perspective. And in Hebrews chapter two, verse one, he says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And sometimes I confess to you, I'm in the place of neglect. I'm neglecting my salvation. I'm neglecting to run with endurance. I'm, I'm neglecting out of dejection. The world's too hard. It's too frustrating. Yet another game pack is messed up by a picture, you know? <laughs> And sometimes it's, it's much more serious than, than a silly game. You just feel disheartened. And in that disheartenment, you kind of step back and don't push as hard and fight as hard. I love, Brandy, I love what you said during staff this morning. She made a comment about, you know, we're still here, which means the restraining influence is still present in the world. We need to be restraining. And she's absolutely right. Restrain for crying out loud. The Holy Spirit in the church is that restraining influence. And the day is coming when we're gonna go and all restraint will be off and the world is gonna go to hell in a handbasket. But for now, we need endurance to receive. We have the Eucharist to remember. And the Hebrew writer says, don't neglect your great salvation. He says, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders and various miracles. Those are the battles already won. You know, the things that have been done, the great conquest of God, remember those things. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. All the way over in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, skip over there real quickly. Verse 12. I love the way he says this. And this kind of brackets the, the entire book of Hebrews. It is a book of great encouragement and, and challenge to be encouraged followers of the Lord. And in verse 12, the Hebrew pastor says, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame 
may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. How do we get healed when we're feeble? Endure. Step out and fight. Use those limbs, as it were, spiritually speaking, for the sake of the kingdom. Trust in the Lord. Step out in faith. Back to Joshua 18, verse four. So Joshua's answer after telling them, you know, you're standing around here. How long are you gonna put this off, guys? So he says, provide for yourselves three men from each tribe that I might send them or I may send them and that they may arise and walk through the land and write a description of it according to their inheritance and then they shall return to me. They shall divide it into seven portions Judah shall stay in its territory on the south and the house of Joseph, that'd be Ephraim and Manasseh, shall stay in their territory on the north. You shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. For the Levites have no portion among you because the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh also have received their inheritance eastward beyond the Jordan, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose and they went. Joshua commanded those who went to describe the land saying, go and walk through the land and describe it and return to me. By the way, remember what the Lord said to Joshua earlier on in the book? Everywhere the sole of your foot treads, I have already given it to you. So go walk the land, guys, check it out. Make descriptions, write boundary lines, come back and tell me about this. And then he says, then I will cast lots for you here before the Lord at or in Shiloh. So the men went and passed through the land and described it by cities in seven divisions in a book. And they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord and there Joshua divided the land to the sons of Israel according to their Divisions. Now, we're not sure what the lots were. The word for lots in the, he, in the Hebrew is goral, and, and it can mean pebbles, or it can mean uh, pottery shards, or, or sticks. And sometimes they would take any of these items or some kind of other item, and they'd toss it in the air and see how it landed. Sometimes they'd put it in a pot, and they'd reach in and shuffle it around and pull one out to try and get some kind of an answer. That was a, a casting lots a pattern that was used in the ancient world. But don't think of it that way because it's obvious here we're talking about something different. In fact, there are even some who say, no, the casting of lots, that, that's, that's something maybe more akin to the Urim and the Tumim that the high priest had with the breast piece. Somehow that that worked. There was a way of communicating with the Lord. And when this phrase, Goral, is used for casting lots in Joshua, it's, it's, I think, speaking of something different. It's not just flipping quarters or rolling dice. And look again at verse 10. Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And that's the key. This was done before the Lord. This was done with the intention of understanding the will of God, which is why some commentators think it's the Urim and the Thummim that they were using to discern this. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, don't go out and buy a magic eight ball because that's not what it's talking about. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The point is this, these inheritances, as we see them laid out, and as we will see the rest of them laid out, were superintended by God. 
So even when you looked at that map and you saw a tiny little uh, Issachar and Zebulun up in the north, you're like, well, they, they didn't get much land. That's what God allotted for them. Dan, in between Judah and Ephraim on the seacoast, that's what God allotted for them. Shimon, right there in the middle of Judah, that's what the Lord determined for them to get. And they did it by this process of casting lots that were not, again, clear on exactly what it was they did, but they did it before the Lord. And what Joshua is intending for us to understand as we read this is this was done by God's will and purposes. This process was interestingly continued all the way into the New Testament. You remember in Acts chapter one? We need a replacement for Judas. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias who they added as the 12th apostle. Of course, you never hear about Matthias again. I'm sure he was a great guy. I'm sure he was a servant of the Lord. I think Paul was the next apostle. What's interesting to me is that after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the idea of casting lots is never mentioned again. It's irrelevant, it's unnecessary. Jesus said, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. So in this section, before the lots are cast, the land is surveyed. Go look at it, go survey the land, go, go check it out. Interesting, he sent out three men from each tribe. This is the only time in the Bible where people are sent out in threes. So I, I think that makes me pause. I think it's significant. He sends out three, three from each of how many tribes are left? Three out of seven tribes. For the task to be complete, you need three. You need to get to three to complete the task. 1 Corinthians 15, verse four, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then the battle was won, right? It was finished on the cross. The win was realized in the resurrection. So he sends them out in threes, and again, it, it, maybe it's just, it's just me. Every time I see the number three, I think resurrection. Every time I see the number seven, I think completion. So the, the completion comes by the resurrection, but he sends them out to do the work, and notice this, Joshua doesn't do the work for them. You go. Go on, go survey the land, check it out, take pictures, draw boundary markers, come back and tell me what you find out. And then we'll go before the Lord and we'll ask him, we'll divide it up by lots. Who gets what based on what you bring back? I love that attitude. Tell you what, it makes my job as a pastor a whole lot easier to think that way. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, all do love and respect, but it's not my job to discover your portion in the land. That's not what I'm called to do. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to discern what your spiritual gift is. The Lord knows, and he will tell you. And you need to go to him. In fact, you need to, you already have your portion. Do you realize that? You have your portion, and I'm talking about in the Christian life. You have your salvation, but you also have your portion. You already have what God has prepared for you to do, what he wants you to be about, what he's gifted you for. You already have it. Well, I don't know what it is. Go get it. Go get it. I'm not gonna get it for you. You go survey the land, check it out, think it through, process it, and then we'll, I'll pray with you anytime. And we'll ask the Lord then to confirm. But we all, and this includes me, we all go get it. 
Now, I, know, I understand Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and some teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You know what that tells me? And maybe this is just a little different take and I'm just hitting this right now as I'm reading it. That means that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers also need to attain maturity. See, he gave these roles to equip the church. Guess what happens while, while a pastor teacher is equipping? I'm being equipped. And I'm maturing in my faith. Just, but this is my spot on the wall. What's your spot on the wall? What are you supposed to do? What's your lot? It may not be a lot, but it's your life. What is your lot? Someone might answer this and say, well, okay, but that's real easy for you, Rick. You know, what if I'm not an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, a pastor, or a teacher? What am I supposed to do? I mean, those are, the, those are obvious and that, that's, it's kind of sad to me that sometimes in the church we look at the obvious roles and we think, well, I can't do that, so I guess I won't do much. Worship leading, well, that one's obvious. Well, I can't, I can't play an instrument. Oh, okay, I guess I'll just, I'll show up. No, you have a portion. Go get it. Find out what it is. In fact, number three in our notes is examine and return. Examine and return. Go examine the land. And what I mean by that is send, send yourself out as a team of surveyors and bring back what you find to Shiloh. Think it through, process it. How did God make you? What, is he, what has he given you? How, how has he talented you, even just in your normal talents? How has he made you to think? How has he formed you and shaped you as a human being? And what intrigues you? What are your interests? Think through these things prayerfully. Wow, I love having people over. Gift of hospitality. Perhaps that is your portion. Think it through. Go examine the land. Bring it back to Shiloh. Meaning what? Okay, let me pause here with this examine and return idea. Shiloh. I know we say Shiloh, but that's an Americanized way to say it. It's Shiloh in the Hebrew. Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 12. God says, Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first. I love, Cheryl and I love taking people to Shiloh. We just started, we've only been actually a handful of times out of all of our Israel tours, but Shiloh is a favorite spot for many people, but, but every time for me. Shiloh is that place, it's the, a flat tableland in the hill country, otherwise very hilly country of Ephraim. And what's interesting about Shiloh is even getting to it, you, you kind of climb up a hill and down a hill and then you come out and in the middle of all these rolling hills, there's a flat spot. And the flat spot is the perfect dimensions for the tabernacle. And in digging around, they discovered there at Shiloh and we know it's Shiloh, we know the location, we know right where it is and digging around there, they found, found at either end of this flat rectangular land, either end has there were leftovers from what they, sacrificial use. There were pottery shards, there were things found there and, and there were uh, like caves dug down as if you had storage areas for the tabernacle in the middle. So when we go to Shiloh, we see the place where we are pretty sure, 99% sure 
the tabernacle sat there for the first 369 years that the children of Israel were in the land. I gotta tell you, and I, this may just be because I'm you know, kind of more of an emotional guy, but uh, I think there's an afterglow <laughs> there at Shiloh. I think there, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't assume that the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God was present on that piece of property, 369 years, and there's not gonna be any effect. In fact, I think I've told you before, the very first time Cheryl and I went, it was in the early spring, and we just went with a guy. We were thinking about adding it to a tour. We're like, can we go out and see Shiloh? I, I think I said Shiloh at the time, and he went, Shiloh, okay, right, yeah. And we went out there, and we walked up the hill and down the other side, and this is, right now, they've got all this stuff built up, and it's really cool. They've got some multimedia stuff for you. That wasn't there. There was nothing there. And we went down the hill, remember this, hon? And, and there was that flat table land, and there were red poppies, thick, only there, only there. I'm not, we have pictures of this. Nowhere else, I mean, there were scattered, scant, you know, poppies around on the hillside stuff, but right there, it was just thick. And I just went, whoa. And we stepped out onto it, which they don't let you do anymore. It's a bummer. And I, it was electric. It was just amazing to be in that place. Again, maybe there was some emotion to it, but I don't know. I, I, I think God was present. The Ark of the Covenant was there in the tabernacle. The glory of God resided there. He met them there above the mercy seat for 369 years at Shiloh, and this is it. So this is where they're gathering to determine when they come before the Lord, it's before the tabernacle, before the Ark of the Covenant there at Shiloh. But the first time, this is the third time the name is used and shows up in the scriptures. There's one other time in Joshua we would have seen, we saw it before. The third time, the very first time that you see Shiloh mentioned, it's not a place, it's a person. Turn back to Genesis 49. Now, you, what you're gonna wanna do for the rest of our study is keep your finger in Joshua and uh, maybe put a Bible marker at Genesis 49 because I'm gonna do a little bit of jumping back and forth um, again during the rest of our time. So, Genesis 49 Verse 10, Jacob summoned his sons, verse one, said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what may befall you in the days to come or in the days of the end is actually what that means, which is fascinating. And then you go into Genesis 49 and the prophecy here is stunning. You'll see some of the fulfillment even in the land apportionments tonight, but the prophecy about the tribes, what happens with the tribes, how it's applied to the tribes, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. But in verse 10, He's speaking now the, the, the blessing over Judah. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Until Shiloh comes. Now there, there are three possible translations of that. One is until he comes to Shiloh. So it may, it may say that. It may say, literally, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to Shiloh, to the, the location of Shiloh. But he'll show up before the scepter departs. It's possible. Second possibility is that the scepter will not depart until he comes to whom it belongs, to whom, that is, to whom the scepter belongs. So until he comes to whom the right to rule belongs, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And the third, and, and most likely, is just what you read there, the scepter will not depart until Shiloh comes. Shiloh's a person. 
And when Shiloh comes, the, 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 the scepter shall not depart. What does that mean? That means the right to self-rule. The right to authority over yourselves as a people, that right would not disappear until Shiloh was on hand. Shiloh, the person, would have to be in the land. You know what's really interesting to me? God gave a very narrow, narrow window for when Messiah could come into the world, and Jesus was there in the window. The window opens when the right to self-rule has to still be in play. You Bible students may remember, but the right to self-rule was stripped from the Jewish people by Rome when finally Rome said, you no longer have the right to capital punishment. And that was the end of Jewish self-rule. Rome removed it. And as history tells us at the same fact, the day that the, the priests and the rabbis in Jerusalem were weeping over the loss of this right, there was a 12-year-old boy in the temple amazing the priests with his understanding and his questions. Shiloh had come. Shiloh was there. The window, by the way, had to close by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. So do you realize in all history, we have from about uh, one to 70 AD, there's about a 70 year window when Messiah would have to come to fulfill prophecy. And Jesus is the only one that fits the bill who was here right on time, right on time. Kyle and Delich in their commentary on the Old Testament say there's perfect agreement as to the fact that the patriarch here, uh, Yaakov, Israel, is proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. So that's uncontested. Judah was to bear the scepter with victorious lion courage until in the future, Shiloh, the obedience of the nations came to him and his rule over the tribes was widened into the peaceful government of the whole world. So until Shiloh came, they would have the right of self-rule and then it would be stripped. Shiloh, by the way, the word simply means rest. Rest. Until Shiloh comes. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Ephesians chapter two, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly, formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. He is our Shiloh. And so the very first use of the word in the Hebrew scriptures of Shiloh is speaking of Messiah here. And then it ultimately becomes a place. So let me go back to the question that we asked here when I said examine and return. Examine the land and return to Shiloh. How does that apply to you and to me? First, go examine the land. Do your homework. Survey the spiritual gifts. Open your Bible. Study Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Take a close look at them. Scout out interests and, and, and intrigues of yours and consider how God made you and how he's putting you all together. In fact, that's what you do, isn't it, Linda? Yeah. Talk to her if you're not, not sure what I'm talking about. Anyway, do all this. That is examining the land. Examine and then return to Shiloh for the ministry and the gifts that he has prepared for you. And I guarantee you, he has them. Do you, do, you know, 
Do you know why I'm a pastor? It's not because I studied for it. I'm a pastor because I, I got called. And I recognized this is what he made me to do. And it's a weird thing for me. I've told you before, kid with a cleft lip doesn't normally go into public speaking. But this was what I, I was led. And, and as a 16-year-old, I knew, I knew. I fought it for years after that, but I knew what that calling was. And I'm thankful for that. But it had to do with just kind of how God made me to think. And, but I needed to come back to Shiloh. I had to come to Jesus to find out, okay, but how do I do this? How do I do this? I, what does this mean, really? And it, it was like, just start walking. I spent, I think, of, of my 30-plus years now in ministry, I spent about the first 29 and a half clueless. The last half's been pretty good, last six months or so. I'm kidding. Come to Shiloh, and he will give you the ministry, and he will give you the gifts, and he will give you the lead as to what, okay, so what is my portion? What am I supposed to do while I'm here on the earth? And don't think you don't have a portion, because if you're here on the earth, you got a portion. Well, they go out, and they survey the land, and they come back, and here's their portion, and it's point number four, it's the last point, and we're gonna fly through these, so buckle up, Cheryl loves when I say that. Number four is the expansive results. Notice the whole thing has been ER. Yeah, so we're kind of in an ER here in, in dealing with our reception issues. Israel had reception issues. They were not receiving those seven tribes. They were still standing around. They had issues. They needed to go to the ER, and they, now we're gonna see their expansive results. Verse 11 of chapter 18 now, the lot of the tribe of the sons of Benjamin. So here are the inheritances as they're given. And inheritance number one is Benjamin. Lot of the tribe of the sons of Benjamin came up according to their families. And the territory of their lot lay between the sons of Judah and the sons of Joseph. If you remember the map or look at the end of your, back of your Bible maps, you can see Benjamin's a tiny little territory right there in, in between uh, Ephraim and Judah. Their border on the north side from the Jordan. Then on the border went up on the south of Jericho on the north and went up through the hill country westward and it ended at the wilderness of Bet-Avon or Bet-Avin. And there the border continued to Lutz on the side of Lutz, that is Bet-El, southward. And the border went down to Ararot Adar near the hill which lies on the south of lower Bet-Horon. Now again, you read this and go, this means nothing to me. Well, it meant something to the map makers. That's how we have our Bible maps. And like I told you last week, these descriptions are absolutely meticulous and are so well-spoken in Joshua that cartographers in our day can look at them and go, oh, okay, that goes right here, and, and there's the plot. So it's very, very clearly laid out what the territory of Benjamin is. And if you continue on down in verse 14, the border extended from there and turned around west side southward to the hill uh, before Betoron, southward ended at Kiriath Baal, um, I could read all of these. I think I'm just gonna let you read those on your own, but just go all the way down until you get down to verse 28, and these are all places and cities and names, and finally you come to Anzalah and Ha'alep and the Jebusite, that is Jerusalem. Gibeah, Kiriat, 14 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the sons of Benjamin according to their families. So Benjamin is like a little slice of cheese sandwiched between two big tribes, between Ephraim and Judah. 
Two tribes, by the way, that would be rival tribes. In fact, ultimately, when the kingdom divides, that's where it will divide. You will have the 10 tribes to the north, and they will often be called Ephraim, and then you'll have the two tribes to the south, which will be called the kingdom of Judah, and that would include Judah and little Benjamin. Little Benjamin, he was the buffer zone. This, this tribe was the buffer zone between these two big, sometimes even warring tribes, but definitely tribes in great rivalry. And Benjamin's the smallest territory of any of these. Listen, you may feel like your territory is small, like you don't have a whole lot. Your, your role in the kingdom is that's really kind of limited. I really only have one or two people that I'm even able to talk to, or, or maybe, and I think about this often, Maybe you're a mom and you're home with the kids and you're thinking, how in the world am I doing any good for the kingdom of God? You're doing massive good by your children. But your portion may sometimes seem small, especially when you start comparing to others, which I would advise you never to do. But you might feel like your part is little or inconsequential, kind of a Benjamin portion in the land, right? Listen, Benjamin was small, but they were mighty. Out of Benjamin came some great fighters. The borders of Benjamin were great. Within Benjamin's borders are Jericho, site of the first conquest. And they also share the site of the last conquest with Judah, and that is Jerusalem. And they produced men of valor and war fighters from Israel's prophetic blessing. If you jump back to Genesis 49, verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the spoil. That sounds like some tough dudes. And some tough dudes came out of Benjamin. In fact, there was one called a mighty man of valor, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse one, and his name was Kish. You know, with a name like Kish, you would need to be a mighty man of valor. Just kind of offset that. What's his name? Kish, but dude was tough. Didn't mess with Kish, and he had a very handsome son who you might recall, also a man of valor named Saul, first king of Israel, comes out of, out of Benjamin. Interesting also, there was another Saul who came out of Benjamin, who I would call a mighty man of valor, whose name was changed to Paul. They come from Benjamin. So all that to say, size and numbers matter nothing to the Lord how big you are, how mighty your allotment. Hey, if you have a big allotment, if you've got a big responsibility, praise the Lord, handle it well, and make sure you give it to him. Most of us just have our little part, our, like I said earlier, our spot on the wall, our little lot in life. And so Benjamin was small, but size is irrelevant to God and his kingdom. The next inheritance, chapter 19, is uh, Shimon. Shimon, I know your Bible says Simeon. Shimon would be how you say it in Hebrew. Then the second lot fell to Shimon, to the tribe of the sons of Shimon, according to their families. And their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Judah. And you can read all the way down through verse nine to see that description. But what's fascinating is that it's in the midst of the sons of Judah. So this is the only tribe where it's that way, where Judah encompasses all of Shimon. They're like an island in the middle of Judah, and it's interesting, if you trace the history of Shimon, they literally disappear. They melt away. Now, some probably just kind of became part of Judah. And when the kingdom divided, some perhaps just stayed with Judah. But, but the Bible very clearly describes 
10 northern tribes and two that were in the kingdom of Judah. Only Benjamin and, and Judah are mentioned as being in the kingdom. So what happened to Shimon? Well, after the split, the only hint we have is 2 Chronicles 15, verse nine, which tells us that Shimon resided with Ephraim and Manasseh. So apparently in the split, they split. And they left the territory and they went up and they just kind of moved in with the Ephraimites and that's where they lived. There is prophetic significance related to Shimon as well. Genesis 49 again, in verse five. Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will, they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Do you realize that happens for both Simeon and Levi? Levi is scattered and dispersed in Israel as the priestly tribe because they finally were redeemed, standing up for the Lord, coming to the Lord's side at Mount Sinai. Levi was dispersed in the priestly tribes in the next couple of chapters beyond this talk all about that. Shimon evaporates into the tribes. And it's exactly as old Jacob pronounced. By the way, I, I won't go back and read this, but Genesis 34 tells the story of Simeon and Levi, Shimon and Levi, when their sister Dinah was forcibly taken by a guy named Shechem, remember? And the city was also called Shechem. And so they went to the men of Shechem and they said, look, uh, we can marry your daughters and you can marry ours, but we have a, a custom, you have to be circumcised. And so all the men of Shechem foolishly agreed, hey, let's do that. And then we can intermarry and that'll be great. And while they were healing from their circumcisions, Shimon and Levi went in and slew every one of them. It was a bloodbath in the town of Shechem. And so Jacob never forgot that. And when it came time for the blessing, that was his blessing to them. You will be dispersed and scattered in Israel. And that is exactly what happened. Inheritance Zebulun. Inheritance Zebulun. Verse 10 says that the third lot came up for the sons of Zebulun according to their families and their territory and their inheritance was as far as Sarid. And then their border went up to the west and to Marala, and then it touched Dabasheth and reached to the brook that is before Jachneim. And you can read Zebulun's inheritance runs all the way down to verse 16. This territory is north of the Kishon River, it's described, which is in between the Sea of Galilee to the east and the Mediterranean to the west. And again, old Israel called it Genesis 49 Verse 13, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore and he shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall be toward Zidon. Now, I wanna point something out to you. If you look at a Bible map, geographically there, um, Zebulun looks like it's not on the seashore. So if you look at it, it's like, well, no. So how does that prophecy come true? What the maps don't show you is based, based on, again, the, the territory and, and how it's described, cartographers understand this and can point out there's actually a strip of land that runs all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea. And historically, Zebulun was the only tribe in Israel that really enjoyed sailing. <laughs> they were the ones that, that dealt with ships and went out to the seashore, and they had that strip of land that was part of their territory. So again, Israel was right. 
he called it. Verse 17, we have inheritance Issachar. The fourth lot fell to Issachar, to the sons of Issachar, according to their families. And this is all, again, spelled out for you, and I'm not gonna read through every single one. I could, but I'm not going to. Down through verse 23, we have inheritance Issachar. Issachar, and if, I don't know if you're flipping back and forth. Some of you are probably like, okay, Genesis 49 and Joshua, and I'm back in my Bible map, and you're kind of jumping between, and that's great, do that. But if you look at Issachar on your Bible map, geographically, it seems to be small, but if you were to stand in the region of Issachar today, it would blow your mind. It's a region in Israel called the Jezreel Valley, and it is huge. I remember the first time we went to Israel, the, the thought that struck me was some things were much, much smaller than I expected. The Jordan River was a creek, you know, at least the first time we crossed it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Jordan River, I'm bound to cross. I can leap over this thing. The Jezreel Valley, I never expected it to be so vast. First time you see it is you go up on Mount Carmel and you look out from Mount Carmel. There's a, there's a lookout very up high and you can look out over the entire Jezreel and it's like, oh my goodness, it's huge. The thing that's so impressive is it has another name, Megiddo. The Jezreel Valley, Jezreel means God sows. It is the breadbasket of the Middle East. In fact, that, that valley is the richest, most productive and fertile soil in the whole area, in the whole of Israel. That is so much produce comes out of there. And yet it's also called the Valley of Megiddo. Some of the greatest wars in history have been fought there, were fought there. Napoleon scattered the Ottomans to the winds there in the Valley of Megiddo. And when Napoleon was there, he said, and I quote, all the armies of, wait, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no space in the whole world more suited for war than this. It is the most natural battleground of the whole earth. And it will be again. It will be again. At Har Megiddo, at Mount Megiddo, they're over the valley. That's where it's gonna happen. Revelation 16, 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddo. The next territory is Asher's. Picking up in verse 24, the fifth lot fell to the tribe of the sons of Asher according to their families, and their territory was Helkat and Hali and Betan and Akshaf. And you can continue on down through verse 31 of the inheritance of Asher. It's another beautiful inheritance. It's, it's far north. So now we're talking about the, the, the tribal allotment that runs along the Mediterranean seacoast way up in the north of Israel. Today, it's Haifa and Akko, leading up toward Tyre and Zidon. So it's a beautiful seacoast region. If you've seen, a lot, of, a lot of people in Israel think Haifa's the best spot to live because it's unbelievably beautiful on the seacoast there. But Asher is interesting because the only times that we hear Asher in the entire Hebrew scriptures is in lists. Numbered among the sons of Israel and then listed in the censuses that are censuses or sensei. Anyway, listed in the, every time there's a census taken of the sons of Israel, Asher's there. So, I mean, we all know the name Asher. We're aware of Asher, but you know nothing, nothing significant. It almost just seems like he's a placeholder until you get to the New Testament. And there's one very significant person who came right out of Asher. When Joseph and Mary brought little Jesus up to the temple, 
Remember, they ran into a man there named Shimon, and Shimon begins to bless, and he's so excited because he had prayed to the Lord, and, and the Lord had told him he would not depart this world before his eyes had seen the Messiah, and when he saw Jesus, he knew. It's as if the Lord tapped him and said, there you go. And so he, he took the baby in his arms, and, and it's a marvelous story in Luke chapter two. Joseph and Mary are just in awe of this whole thing, and then up comes this woman, an 84-year-old woman, spent all her time there at the temple, a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. Luke chapter two, verse 36, of the tribe of Asher. So here's this daughter. By the way, I always like to point this out. When people say, well, the 10 northern tribes were lost, no, they weren't. God knows where every single person of every single tribe of Israel, including Hank, he knows where y'all are. And he had Anna of Asher was living right there in Jerusalem. So when the 10 northern tribes were conquered by Assyria, many of the people fled down into Judah and just assimilated there. But the 10 tribes are not lost. So Anna was there. Listen to this description. Luke 2.36, she was advanced in years, had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. Wow. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. I'll tell you what, only in God's economy could a woman be in that position back at those days. Those who call God the patriarchal male chauvinist God are completely missing the daughters of Zelophehad and Mary, as we talked about on Sunday morning, and Anna of Asher, who served at the temple. That's all she did. And at that very moment, so Simeon, that old man, is holding up Jesus and blessing him. At that moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him, that is Jesus, to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. What a joyous moment. And by the way, Asher means happy. So you got Anna the happy one. Just think of her that way. I, I love that story. And, and I felt the same way, by the way, about Joseph when we were talking about Sunday morning about Joseph seemingly being irrelevant. If you didn't hear the teaching, go back and listen to that because we put together a lot of stuff with firstborns and secondborns and all this. But Joseph seems kind of irrelevant in the birth story, except that you find out that Mary had to marry in Judah for the inheritance to be legitimate. And so suddenly Joseph is, is highly significant. I love that God does that. He takes Anna of Asher, an insignificant, unknown, seemingly irrelevant tribe, and a, an old woman who has now been a widow for most of her life, and she's just there in the temple, and suddenly she's named, and every generation ever since, for 2,000 years, knows who Anna is. Brothers and sisters, joy and significance and relevance are all found where Jesus is recognized. And when you are joyful about Jesus, that's your significance. That's my relevance. That's important. It's when the Savior is seen. Then we come to inheritance Naphtali, verse 32. The sixth lot fell to the sons of Naphtali, to the sons of Naphtali according to their families. And that runs all the way down to verse 39. These are the, the inheritance. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the sons of Naphtali according to their families and the cities with their villages. Naphtali. Anyone know where this is? If I were to read it to you. In fact, let me just do that. Their border was from Halep and the oak at Za'ananim and Adami, Nekeb, and Yabnil, and as far as Lakum, and it ended at the Jordan. So we're clear on that, right? 
Naphtali and Zebulun make up together what would eventually be called Galilee of the Gentiles. Zebulun and Naphtali. It is, it's a beautiful region. It is bucolic. It is country. I love going there because you realize when you're walking those, those green hills in that beautiful region around the Sea of Galilee, this is where Jesus grew up. You know, he was a country boy. He wasn't a big city dude. He, he was low key. He was in this, not low key. Don't, don't confuse it with the Marvel character. No, it's low key. And it's just so cool to think of Jesus that way in that very peaceful, sweet country region. You know what the Bible calls it? Dark, dark. Why? Because Galilee of the Gentiles in the far north, think of it this way. Uh, when Hezbollah wants to attack Israel, where do they come from? Lebanon. And they attack from the north. All of the major armies flowed into Israel from the far north. Assyria, when they came in, came first into the far north, knocking out the tribe of Dan first. Naphtali, Zebulun, right there. Very, very uh, beaten up and bruised area. Babylon, when it, they didn't just come straight across from the east. They came up and came down through the north. So this is a dark place where they're, you know, it's far away or furthest away, at least from Jerusalem. And of course, the more spiritual Jews, they would be down in Jerusalem and look up toward the Galilee with contempt. You hear the contempt in the gospels where they say, Rabbi from Nazareth? You know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And, and it's just not thought of well. It's beautiful, but it's dark. The dark region. And yet, it was home base to Jesus' earthly ministry. Of all Israel, he chose to spend the bulk of his time there until the very end, where he went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem every year, but, but he spent most of his ministry there in the Galilee, in the place of darkness. Remember the prophecy? Matthew chapter four, verse 13, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He came and settled in Capernaum, Capernaum, Capernaum which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that's Galilee right there. When you look at a Bible map and look at those two tribes, that's the Galilee. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now this Christmas, you're gonna know why it says that because that land was beaten down and bullied and trodden through by massive armies that came through. It was not a happy place. And it was just kind of a place where it was impoverished. The wealthier people would flow on down to Jerusalem and Judah in the south, but boy, up in the Galilee, the country bumpkins, they lived there. It was kind of the Cedro Woolley of, of Israel, really. No, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Cedro's beautiful. The Galilee was dark until Jesus came and a light dawned, a great light. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six goes on and says, for a son will be born to us, a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God. And yes, these are all separate nouns. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And we put Prince of Peace together, but even that is Prince and Peace. He's known as all of this 
Jesus settles in the region of darkness with the helpless. He ministers in the place of the shadows. He shines in the darkness. In Zebulun and Naphtali, that's, that's their region. If you, by the way, if you're in a place of darkness, good news. That's where Jesus loves to do his best ministry, right there in the shadows. Verse 40, back in Joshua 19, now we come to the territory of Dan, the inheritance of Dan. This is the seventh and final tribe, their inheritance. You go through the seventh lot, fell to the tribe of the sons of Dan according to their families. And the territory of their inheritance was Zorah and Eshtiel and Irshemesh and Sha'alabim and Aijalon, Ithla, Elon, Timna, Ekron, and Elteka and Gabithon and Bealat and continue on Yehud and all the way down. But if you note verse 46, Mejarkon, Jarkon is the, the, the word for the Jordan River in Hebrew is Yarden. Yardan, Yardan, it means comes from Dan. So Dan ultimately was in the far north and the Jordan River flowed down from Dan. That's confusing though. That's confusing. Um, Verse 47 says the territory of the sons of Dan proceeded beyond them, which is Joshua's way of saying what they were given, they weren't content with. So they went somewhere else. For the sons of Dan went up and fought with Lashem and captured it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword and possessed it and settled in it, and they called Lashem Dan after the name of Dan, their father. Lashem has another name. It's Laish. It's another stop on our tour. If you've been to Israel with us, you remember Laish was where the, uh, what we call the, gate, the Abraham Gate was. That was the city of Laish. It's a 3,500-year-old entrance to a Canaanite city called Laish. And Dan ended up up there, and the end of the inheritance of Dan goes down through verse 48. But what's curious about this is that if you look at the, what, the allotment of Dan, it was on the Mediterranean Sea coast. Originally, between Ephraim, Benjamin, and Judah, it's what we would call Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv was Dan. Tel Aviv and Yafo. Now, people from all over the world go to Tel Aviv to enjoy the white sand beaches and the Mediterranean sea coast. It is absolutely beautiful. It is the nightlife of Israel. In fact, they say Israelis party in Tel Aviv and they pray in Jerusalem. Tel Aviv was Dan. And and the the, the beauty of that plot of land, if you look on your Bible map, you'll see that it is protected, right? It's in between Ephraim and Benjamin and Judah. So to get to Dan, you gotta fight through a lot of other tribes to get to that safe, beautiful spot on the coast. And Dan didn't want it. They didn't want it. Why not? What's the story? We'll talk about that, Lord willing, when we get to the book of Judges. But it's a very sad and sordid tale of what happens when a people become discontent with God's portion. I hope that's not you. I just don't like the life he's given me. I don't like my portion. I want what he's got. I want to do what she does. I don't want to do this. Why am I here? Dan was that way. Dan said, we don't want to be here. They went up to the far north. Remember what I told you happened in the far north? That's where the Assyrians attacked first. That's where Babylon would come. Dan was the first tribe taken out, wiped out when Assyria came in. Ultimately, if you try to strike out on your own like Dan, you will strike out. And Dan did. 
First Timothy chapter six, verse six, explains something that's so important to us, and that is this. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Dan was discontent. Again, that, that story I'm gonna save for another time. But speaking of contentment, we're gonna finish this all up right now. There's one inheritance left. I know we just covered seven. Well, I thought that was all the tribes. Well, there's, there's one more, and it is inheritance, Joshua. Verse 49, when they finished apportioning the land for inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. In accordance with the commandment of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked. You know, that's so cool. Think about that sentence right there. In accordance with the commandment of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked. Remember what Jesus said? Whatever you ask for in my name, I will give you. What Joshua asked for was in accordance with the word of the Lord. When I'm asking in alignment and accordance with Jesus, he's gonna answer. He's gonna do that. And so that's Joshua. And they gave him Timnat Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim. And so he built the city and he settled it. Wow, that's, that's so beautiful. Let me ask you, how many of you have heard of Timnat Sarah? Nobody. Well, that's kind of sad. Actually, I'm not surprised. Nobody's heard of Timnat Sarah. We have no idea. What, you know where this place is? We do know where it is. We don't visit it on our tours. It's a barren wilderness. It's like the last place in Israel that you go, oh, I want to build me a little city there. That's where I want to retire. I want to go to Timnat Sarah in the region of Ephraim, which was Joshua's tribe. Remember, Joshua was an Ephraimite. But bless, Timnat Sarah? I could, I could give a, a Washington city, perhaps I shouldn't after the whole Cedro Woolley thing. Um, this would be like saying, I choose in America to live in, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna do it because someone's gonna be offended. You know, it's was, it was really funny. Years ago, Cheryl and I were looking at, at a map uh, of, of uh, the Anaheim area. Actually, it was kind of a map of the whole United States, but we could see Anaheim, and it's where we were living right there. And, and, um, and Hannah was looking at the map one day. Hannah was like three, maybe four years old. Remember that? Looking at the map, and she looks down, and I'm pointing some things out to Corey, who was a little older. Hannah goes, Dad, where's hell? <laughs> and I said, actually, it's about uh, five miles just south of where we live right now, you know? <laughs> Well, our best friends at the time lived five miles south of us, and that was, that was the joke. Anyway, Timnat Sarah. Timnat Sarah means abundant provision. You look at it on the map, you go visit it in person, and it doesn't look like what I would consider to be an abundant provision. Here's the deal, and I love this about the Lord too. When you let him decide your lot, when you let God choose, even if on the surface it looks like a barren wilderness, the results, they are always abundant. It is always abundant provision. When I try to go out and get it myself, you know when I try to save my life every time I lose it? But when I lose my life for his sake, I find it. And that's, that's the picture here, I think, of Tim, not Sarah, the abundant provision of God. You look at it and go, really, there? But Joshua was so abundantly provided for, victorious in his life, lover of the Lord, saw things that you and I only dream of seeing, experienced God up close. God spoke, remember God spoke directly to Joshua. Who else had he spoken to directly aside from Joshua? Moses. 
course, back 400 years, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a, that's a pretty select group of people who heard the Lord at the time. Joshua was abundantly blessed. He built a city, Timnat Sarah, and, and it, it grew, and, and history tells us was actually became a, a really beautiful place, at least in terms of a city. Here's, here's the thought. God's abundant provision. Peter is talking to Jesus. And he began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Joshua is the last. He's the last of all of Israel to receive his lot. He gives everybody else theirs first. He is concerned as a servant of the Lord with serving his people. And he serves them to the very end, and finally at the very end, the Lord, I don't know if someone said, hey, what about you, Joshua? Or how it came up. But Joshua is now given his allotment of land, his abundant provision. Verse 51, these are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel distributed by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. You realize that roughly three-fourths of the Bible are concerned with the 12 tribes of Israel. If you read through your Bibles, that is a massive amount of scripture that is given to these 12 tribes. And what I love about the 12 tribes and the story, and it all pieces together. You know, we piece together a story on Sunday. We, I've got another one for you coming, but it's just so amazing to look at the 12 tribes and to consider where they were, the, the 12 sons, and where the tribes grew, and then what happened along the way, and ultimately where they're gonna end up. For example, in Revelation chapter seven, we see 12,000 from every single one of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, and they are listed out by tribe, 144,000 Jews in the tribulation who are gonna be sent out as missionaries around the world. It'd be awesome. You ever, you ever talk to a Jewish person who's given their life to Jesus? Get out of their way. They're tenacious, right, Hank? You cannot stop these people because they, they get it. I mean, there's a richness there that, that, that we Gentiles were grafted into and they're gonna be all over the place. One tragedy I'll, I'll just mention quickly is Dan is not in the list. Dan is not among the 144,000. Why not? Old Jacob prophesied that Dan was a serpent in the way. And I've mentioned before, there's, there's possibility, and we'd have to look into this more than we have time to right now, but there's possibility that Antichrist may have a connection to Dan. And whatever the reason, Dan is not listed among the 144,000, but this is what's amazing to me and beautiful about the 12 tribes. If you go to Ezekiel 48 and just read through the chapter, all 12 tribes and the priestly line of Levi all received their allotments in the land in the millennial kingdom. They're all back. They're all in place. 
They're all remembered by God. He hasn't forgotten a single one. God is so faithful. And right in the middle of it all, Yeshua HaMashiach, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right there in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning. That's Yehoshua and his inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us and for opening up the scriptures to us. And I just pray blessing, Lord, on my brothers and my sisters. I have been so blessed just reading through this and studying it out and thinking through the the marvels of your word and what you have accomplished and what you've done. Father, you have given every one of us, all punning aside, you have given every one of us a lot in life. You have given us a portion. Father, for anyone among us tonight or listening online who hasn't received their portion, who hasn't embraced what you have called them to be about in this life, I pray that they would get into survey mode and come back to you at Shiloh. I pray, Father, for anyone who is discouraged that they would be encouraged with endurance. We have need of endurance to run this race. And Father, I I pray for those who know their lot for us not to shrink back but to to strengthen hands that are weak and knees, Lord, that are feeble and take possession of the promises that you have for us right here and right now. And Holy Spirit, you, you know how to guide us in that. So I just pray for my brothers and my sisters and myself. Would you bless us with the knowledge that the battle was won on the hill of Calvary and now we can possess the promises that you have, every spiritual promise in the heavenlies. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We don't deserve it, but we receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.